Don't forget, uh, if you are interested in being baptized, uh, please talk to me. Uh, we will meet with the candidates for baptism on Tuesday night, the 18th, and then on Sunday, October the 23rd, uh, we will have a baptism. Uh, so if you're interested, uh, please come and see me. And if, by the way, you're here this morning uh, and you are uh, confident that you are a born again follower of Jesus Christ and you have never been baptized, you need to be baptized. It, it's a command. It's not something that's optional. In fact, it's the very first command that Jesus gives the new believer. So if you're here and you have never been baptized and you know that you're a born again believer in Jesus Christ, you need to come and talk to me. Take the plunge. Uh, we'll we'll make it easy on you. I don't I won't hold your head under longer than 20 seconds, something like that. Uh, you can wear a snorkel if you're more comfortable with that. So uh, we can work around anything. So. All right, now we have, I think, seven or eight, uh, and they're all children and teens. Um, and so I know there's got to be some adults in here that are lovers of Jesus that haven't been baptized. So come and talk to me. Hey, a separate issue is church membership. Uh, just because you're being baptized, you're not automatically a member here. Uh, and so beginning in mid-November, watch your bulletins, I'll be teaching a short-term Sunday school class about six to eight weeks uh, on the basic beliefs uh, of this church and what does it mean to be a member of a church uh, and just a tiny little bit of history of the Grace Brethren. Uh, and if you're already a member, but you never went through a course like that or you just want a refresher, feel free to join us. Uh, so just watch your bulletins for that. Uh, and that'll be coming in November. So we've been talking about family and marriage and relationships uh, and working through this, we'll finish up your uh, original outline today. And you should have received the new outline when you came in. And I believe uh, there were 12 things, 12 foundational principles uh, about the family. And we're ready to look at number 10 today uh, and to see what God has to say about the family, which is, uh, I think, under attack in our country today by the evil one. Uh, in a lot of different ways. Uh, so number 10, we see the family is of utmost importance to God's program because of the Bible's teachings about the important functions that the family is to fulfill in the lives of its members. So in other words, uh, God has put each of us into a family and then he tells us how we're supposed to operate within that family. Uh, because the way that I function within my family has an impact on everyone else in that family. Psalm 127 uh, is a great place to go uh, to look at something like this. Go to Psalm 127 with me. And what's interesting, uh, and we might look a little bit at Psalm 128 as well. Uh, great family psalms. They're part of the ascent Psalms. These are the Psalms. What's another word for the word Psalm? What would be a synonym? Song. A synonym for Psalms is song. That's a lot of S's. Like she saw sea Psalms by the sea song or something like that. Right. But you can remember it that way. Right. Psalms. Uh, they were songs. It's poetry. But these were ascent Psalms. These were the songs that the Jewish people would sing as they would go uh, on their travel 
to Jerusalem for the different festivals. And it's interesting, here we have some family songs. So we can picture families traveling to Jerusalem. Of course, they would come uh, over the hills, come down into the Kidron Valley, and then you'd have to ascend up to the Temple Mount where the festivals were. Uh, So that's why they're called Ascent Psalms. So we could picture families actually singing these psalms or these songs together. Uh, As they were ascending up to Jerusalem. And by the way, I think we could make a strong case that this is evidence of family devotions. Uh, This is evidence that fathers should be leading their families in times in the scriptures, uh, in times of song. Don't worry, guys. No one will ever hear you sing except your wife and kids. Uh, uh, but today with social media, you got to be careful that they're not recording it uh, and then posting it to YouTube. Uh, I would love to see a clip of Eddie singing with Annabella. That would be great, though. I did hear him doing that once, so it wasn't too bad. So but we see families singing here or worshiping together. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early and to retire late to eat the bread of painful labors, uh, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. So what he's saying is, uh, what use is it to work your tail off to provide for your family and to make all this money if you're not doing it primarily to bring glory to God? Uh, it's just a, a, a vain pursuit. It's almost he's almost echo, echoing what uh, King Solomon would say later in Ecclesiastes. Right. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity in the in the message. There is without God, it's all meaningless. He's not saying work is meaningless. He's saying without God, work is meaningless. Without God, life is meaningless. It has no purpose. Verse three, behold. I don't want any snickering from parents. Children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. So. What do we see here? Some things here. We already mentioned no amount of human toil or sacrifice can accomplish much unless it has God's blessing. Sounds like what the Apostle John wrote, doesn't it? When Jesus said in John 15, without me, you can do nothing. He's saying that God and we come into the New Testament more specifically, Christ should be the center of every home. Building. Guarding, he's talking about the city wall. He's talking about how the role of a father is to guard and protect his family. Enjoying, even conserving, is what we are called to do in families under the protection of God's word and blessing. We may get tired in God's work, but we should not get tired of God's work. So he's talking about labor. He's talking about toiling. He's talking about working and how hard life can be. But we can find even meaning, enjoyment, the psalmist says, if we do it with God at the center. In fact, Paul told Timothy, 
that there is much in life to enjoy. He said, God gives us a lot of things in life to enjoy. I think sometimes as Christians, as Bible-believing Christians, sometimes we're afraid to enjoy life. Does that make sense? Like I came in this morning and Kyle was over here with the bulletins. He goes, hey, pastor. I said, whoa, dancing, not a church, Kyle. Cool it. Of course, I was just kidding. But he was having fun. He was enjoying himself. He was having a good time. Show us, bust some moves out there. There you go. Wow. That's, that's, you need to patent that. Wow. Okay. But God, and also, Jesus says in the Gospels that our Heavenly Father loves to give his children good gifts. We just have to guard our hearts that we don't love the gifts more than the one who gives it to us. And we can enjoy life, but we have to make sure that we don't enjoy life more than we delight in the one who gives us the good things in life. It's okay to have fun. It's okay to celebrate. It's okay to laugh uh, and to enjoy the things that God gives us in life as long as we don't cherish those things more than we do him. Now, in verses three through five, when he's talking about children. I want to keep this in context of what was happening in Nehemiah. Remember, the Israeli people, the, uh, the um, almost said Irish. No, not Irish. Uh, the Jewish people. I was going to combine Israeli and Jewish, and it came out Irish. Uh, so the Jewish people were coming back from captivity to Jerusalem, and they had to rebuild everything. And the scriptures in chapter 7 of Nehemiah verse 4 says that there was a lot of work to do in Jerusalem, but not a lot of people. So he was encouraging them to have children and to expand their families. He was talking about what a blessing it was to have children. The psalmist tells us here that it does absolutely no good to build or guard the future if there is no future generation to carry on. Children make the home a treasury, but they are also useful like fruit and like arrows. The psalmist says fruit of the womb uh, and like arrows because they make the home a garden and an armory. What does he mean by that? He's saying we must raise our children to know the truth and to fight to defend the truth. And it's in the family that we preserve the best of the past and invest in the future. I guess to put it in our current layman terms, the family is the first place of discipleship. The family is the first place where children should be learning what the word of God says and where children should be learning how to obey the word of God and to think critically in how to defend the word of God when it's challenged in their lives. The home is the first place of discipleship. And the scriptures say that who, first of all, is held accountable for that discipleship in the home? I heard some deep masculine mumbling. The father. Yeah. Now, some of us are in single parent homes. And so mom has to do it. Totally okay. Some of us are in homes where dad is not a follower of Jesus. But if he's okay with it, then mom should be doing that with the kids. But if you're here today and you're a married man 
and you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you are the one who is held responsible to make sure that your children are equipped and discipled, not just in the scriptures, but in the application of scripture. In other words, how to live their lives as a Christian. And to pursue the things which God says we should be pursuing. You see, I think it's really easy for us today to leave a lot of the discipleship up to the Sunday school teacher. And leave it in the hands of the youth pastor and the youth staff. Or to leave it in the hands of the pastor, though I don't often directly disciple your children and your teens. But others do. But that's not the biblical pattern. That's not God's design. God's design is that the youth pastor and the youth staff and the Sunday school teacher and the pastor support you in what you are doing at home. With your training and your teaching and your discipling. Yeah, a lot of you look like rats. That's that's not that's not the plan I like. I like plan B. It's serious business, isn't it? Now. Are you guaranteed that if you raise your child up in the direction of the Lord, that he will turn out to be a strong, upright Christian person? True or false? That is true. It is false. No, you're right. It is false. Is it true or false that a child cannot grow up in an ungodly home and become a strong Christian. True or false? You're correct. That's true. It's false. Okay. Both are false. You can be raised in a non-Christian home. And if you're involved or being taught and discipled in a strong church, you can grow up to be a godly person. However, the pattern, the plan, God's design is for mom and dad to love the Lord and to instruct their children in the things of the Lord. Dads. You've got to be reading your Bibles with your kids. Dads, you've got to be doing Bible stories with your kids when they're little. Dads, you've got to get connected to your preteens and your teens to talk through with them and to work through with them. I'm telling you, those preteen and teen years are some intense times of working through some things where young people are saying, okay, do I believe this just because my mom and dad believe it? Or am I going to own this conviction for my own self? A lot of questioning. And that transition out of childhood into preteen, we see that we as parents become less dictatorial, which is fine when they're little, that works. You know, don't touch that. Don't say that. Keep your hands to yourself. Sit down. You're getting on my last nerve. Don't do that. You know. But with preteens and teens, that approach doesn't really work so much anymore. It takes a lot more coming alongside and transitioning into more of a counselor, into more of a guide, into more of a friend. Our children have to know that they can come to us and be completely transparent and completely open with their spiritual struggles and know that they won't be condemned or judged. So it's so important, isn't it? It's so important. It starts in the home, the church. Remember, the family was created first before the nation of Israel, before the church, before human government. It was the very first institution that God created. It's where it all begins. It's where it all starts. 
So Psalm 128 is another ascent psalm of family. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive plants around your table. Now, if you don't have a pet name for your wife, like honey, schnookums, uh, I don't know, main squeeze, whatever, you know, you guys call your wives. There's one for you. Fruitful vine. How's my fruitful vine today? So there's you guys feel free to take that. And then your kids, you can call them your little olive plants. Hello, little olive. I'm going to squeeze you. Okay. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. You see how? The Lord God is in the center of this family, in the center of the home, that the happiness, the harmony, the peace flows out of having God at the center. The Lord bless you from Zion and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. There's talk about grandparents and the influence that grandparents can have. I have seen many of young people grow up strong in the Lord, not because of parents, but because of godly grandparents. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. You see two. You see the word blessed four times in Psalm 128, but two different forms of the word blessed. One means the good that comes to us when we do what pleases to God. But then there's also a blessing or happiness that comes because God blesses people. So what he's saying is there are blessings and happinesses, I guess we could say, that come because we're God's people. But there's a whole nother boatload of blessings and happinesses that can come because we're doing things the way God has commanded us to do it. So when we conduct our homes after the design that God has laid out in the scriptures, we can experience a lot of blessings that can only come through designing our homes around the way he has commanded. And when we don't, then we miss out. We actually rob one another when we don't conduct our families the way that God asks us to do. Notice how this psalm is talking about a happy man and woman as they go through the stages of life together in the fear of the Lord. But notice, guys, especially directed, this psalm is especially directed to the man of the house, to the husband, to the leader. And if you're here this morning and you're a guy and you're not married, maybe someday you want to be married. And that's another reason to listen closely. And I know I've mentioned it before to the guys and the girls or gals. If you're single and you desire to be married, then you need to start preparing yourself now. The best thing you can do is to work on being the kind of man and woman God wants you to be. So that when the time comes in his plan, you will be ready. These two Psalms are teaching us that it takes three to form a happy marriage. Who are those three? Husband, wife, and God or Christ. That's what these psalms are saying. The fear of the Lord is not cowering, being afraid. The fear of the Lord in the Old Testament is talking about reverence, awe, respect, worship, obedience. 
Only when a home has the fear of the Lord, Christ as the center, will the fullness of family blessing be felt. So it's very important in the Israeli economy, uh, vines and olives, because from vines came what? Grapes. No, olives don't grow on vines. And what did they make out of grapes? Wine. Okay, you guys, okay. You can say wine, it's allowed. Okay. He uses the vines and the olives as an illustration of a husband's love for his wife. You see that SOS doesn't mean save our ship, it means Song of Solomon. You see that illustration or that comparison throughout the Song of Solomon. Notice he says there in Psalm 128, Uh, In verse three, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. And if you have a study Bible, you probably have a little number one next to the word within, because it's an important word. What he's saying is this wife demonstrates faithfulness to her husband and her home. And she is actually in the innermost part of the tent, meaning away from the open front door where she is happy She is completely entrenched in the things of her marriage and her home. And she's very happy to be so. Now, this psalm isn't saying that women are not allowed to work outside the home. That's not what this psalm is saying. In fact, the ultimate woman in Proverbs 31 is taking care of her home and working outside of the home. That's an issue between the husband and the wife. And I would say the key determining factor there is how does your working outside the home impact your family and how does it impact your spiritual relationship uh, with the Lord and your family? The unfaithful wife will leave the sanctity and safety of her home. So that word within is pointing to the fact that she's deeply entrenched in the things that God has called her to do. And he says, children are like olive plants around your table, like olive shoots around the base of a tree, fresh and vigorous. And there's a picture of the dining room table or the kitchen table here. When he says there in verse three, your children are like olive plants around your table. It's a picture of eating together, having a meal together. And the whole idea of olive shoots and olive plants is the idea of agriculture and patiently farming and how much work that it takes. And yet the yield and the rewards are great. Yes, raising children is hard work. Anybody in here disagree with that? If you do, I would like to have your children for a while. You can take mine. Our children are grown to or married, but we still do parenting, but in a different way. How often do you have a family meal together around the table? It's sort of a lost practice, isn't it? Because we're all going here and there and everywhere. And today, usually, children are just as busy as mom and dad. In our house, when our kids were in middle school and high school, the meal usually where we were all together uh, was definitely breakfast. And then sometimes not even then, because maybe I would be gone. Uh, But it's tough. But the picture here is that a lot of discipleship, a lot of parenting can go on around that table. 
Maybe that's something we want to do. Let's try to have at least one meal together a week as a family. Not, not me. You don't have to have me there. But I mean, you know, in your family. Though that's pretty good. Uh, have your family around the table. Number 11 of 12. The family is of utmost importance to God's program because of the important roles that family life is given among requirements for church leadership. So the scriptures compare the life in the home to being a leader in the church. The scriptures say you can't be a leader in the church unless you're a leader in your home. Because if you can't manage the things going on in your home, how are you going to manage the things going on in the church? Specifically, he's talking to pastors, to elders, and to deacons. So if you're not one of those three, I know you're thinking, whoo, so he's not talking to us. I'm going to check out for a few minutes. Wrong. Paul's pointing out to Timothy the priority of the home once again. Do we see this as a theme from Genesis to Revelation? The priority and the importance of the home. It impacts everything. It impacts everyone. All the way out to the greater reaches of society, to life here in our own church. The pastor and leaders cannot be one thing at home and another thing at church. Because for the Christian, home, church, and ministry are all one and the same. If his children do not obey him, Paul tells Timothy, and respect him, then his church most likely will not either. He says to manage your home and manage the things of the church. What does that word mean in Timothy? It means to rule, to govern, or to preside over. The pastor and the husband or the father directs the business of the church and home, not as a dictator, but as a loving shepherd. The scriptures are very clear that a good pastor is one who shepherds gently. He doesn't beat the sheep. I guess you could say. That's an expression I was taught. Don't beat the sheep. But the same with the husband or the father in the home. He is the leader designated by God to be so. But he's not the dictator. He's not the king. He's not the boss. That's not what is meant by being the leader in the home. In fact, Jesus made it very clear to his disciples. He said, don't be like the Gentile leaders who lord their authority over the people. But he who wants to be first among you should be last. The husband and the father in the home is a servant leader, a sacrificial leader who puts his own needs and wants in last place to take care of his wife and his children. Because he also uses the expression there in Timothy to take care of, which is a very tender, personal, gentle side of ministry and leadership. Luke 10 is the story of the Good Samaritan that uses those exact same words. He took care of the man. It says he bound up or he wrapped up his wounds. He paid his bills at the end. He took care of him. He didn't just go over and say, hey, you need to get up and come on, let's go. I'll get you situated somewhere. And, and how, would you, how could you let yourself get into this mess? I mean, you should know better than that. 
No, he didn't do that. It was tender personal care. The last foundational principle of family life. Family is of utmost importance to God's program because of the way God connects family relationships to our relationship with him. It's that horizontal, vertical principle of relationships. In other words, as my relationship is with God, so is my relationship with people around me. I treat people the way I treat people because that's the way I treat God. The way I treat people is a direct reflection of what I think about God. And in the context of marriage and children, I'm told that loving my wife the way God has commanded me to is an act of worship to God. And I'm told that the way my wife follows my leadership and respects me is, first of all, an act of worship between her and her God. And I'm told in the letter Paul wrote to the Ephesians that the way that my children obey me as their parent is a way that they can worship God. The obedience that a child has for a parent is, first of all, a duty he has to God. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, so that it may go well with you. See, he's connecting the parent-child relationship to the child's relationship with God. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He's connecting the husband's duty to his wife to the husband's relationship with Christ. Wives, be subject and respect your husbands as you would the Lord. Connecting the wife's roles and responsibilities to her relationship to her Lord. That's, that makes it serious, doesn't it? That's serious. That means the way I talk to my wife, the way I treat my children, the way I talk to my parents, so on and so forth, all is saying something about my worship of God. It really puts it at a deeper level. Go to First Peter chapter 3. And if you're here this morning and you're a husband... Uh, I was going to have the ushers bring in some football helmets, but I didn't get around to uh, doing that for your own protection today. But so you're going to have to uh, just keep your keep your head down, guys. This might get a little rough for some of us. Deeply convicting. First Peter three, seven. You husbands in the same way. Same way is referring the context here is submission to authority. We'll see what that means in a moment. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone who is weaker physically. Let's talk about physical strength. Since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, before I forget The three C's here of what Peter is saying husbands should treat their wives. There's three C's here. There's consideration, there's companionship, and there's chivalry. The three C's of a husband to his wife. Consideration, companionship, and chivalry. But he's also pointing out four areas of responsibility for husbands to their wives. First of all, 
The first responsibility is a physical responsibility because Peter says live with them. Some of your Bibles may say dwell with them. Now, guys, this means much more than sharing the same address. Now, that in itself may be an eye opener to some of us. When he says live with your wife, he doesn't mean just live at the same house. That's good enough. I'm there. A lot of guys are present, but checked out. Present, but checked out. You've checked out before you've checked in. God tells us that we as husbands and wives are one flesh. Guys, you have to make time to be home with your wife and you have to communicate with your wife. Okay, let's turn those frowns upside down. And by the way, guys, we were designed to communicate with our wives. So we can't say that we're just not talkers or uh, we're not good at sharing our feelings. We're not as good as our wives. And we don't have to be like our wives. We just have to fulfill the commandments that God has given us. I saw one study this week. What do you think? Talk to talk to your neighbor. What do you think is the average number of minutes per week that a husband and wife actually communicate? Tell your neighbor, what do you think? I saw this study this week. What do you think? You want me to tell you what I think? I already have the answer. All right. Here's the answer. And as a husband, I think this number of minutes is a lot. 37. Now, as a man, isn't that a lot? I'm being sarcastic. Some of you are like, what is wrong with him? (laughs) I got 37 minutes talking. Just the two of us just doing nothing but talking for 37 minutes. That seems like a long time. No. Just thanks for that, because I am just kidding. So. So. If you're like us and you're brand new empty nesters, we have now been empty nesters for two weeks. First time in 26 years, we have not had children or young people, American or Chinese, in our home. When we sit down together in the living room the first evening, do you think we heard crickets? You say something that echoes down the hall. Hey, hey, hey. Actually, we've talked about it. And we've come to the conclusion that we love it. We love it. Sorry. We love our children. And we love it that we're alone now. But we were talking. We didn't know if we'd be down in the dumps, you know, if we've had the blues. Because, you know, because we had Jay for two years with us and it was nice. Uh, but they did what they're supposed to do. They're their own family unit and they went out on their own and got their own place. Do we talk more than 37 minutes a week? Please say yes. Oh, a lot more. Good. I'm a talker. I'm a blabbermouth. So actually, I do more talking than she does. So anyway, 37 minutes is the average. I'm not sure that's enough to have a solid. Maybe maybe it is. You guys need to talk with each other, I guess, and decide. Maybe for some of you are thinking less. I don't know. Uh, 
Notice the context of First Peter three is all about submission. Well, who is the husband being told to submit to? Because he is says husbands in the same way. He was just talking to the wives about submission. The husband is not submitting to the wife, but the husband submits to his loving duty of being sensitive to his wife and providing for her physical, material and other needs within the boundaries of Scripture. Husbands, we make the commitment to submit to our duty that God has given us to care for, to love and to be sensitive to the wives that God has given us. And it's interesting that Peter is telling us these things. What is implied by the fact that he's telling us to do this? And also in this passage, he says, husbands, don't be harsh with your wives. Because he knows that as men, we're going to struggle with this. I know we're a little couple minutes over, but I want to finish this piece. The second Responsibility. The first was physical. Now we see a mental or intellectual responsibility. He says, live with your wife in an understanding way. Now, this is a really important word, guys. Understanding. It's pointing to deep knowledge. It's also pointing to individualistic knowledge. He's saying, guys, know your wife and know her specifically. Not know every woman and what every woman needs. He says, zero in and focus on your own wife because all people are different. Every woman is different. I know we guys were tempted to think they all just come with one. It's just one size fits all. Not true. Not true for us as men. It's not true for women. He's saying, put your wife before yourself. Be sensitive to her feelings, her needs and her fears. That word understanding literally means consideration. He says, treat her as a fellow heir, a fellow heir. He's talking about companionship. And he says, fellow heir, the grace of life, that phrase grace of life is not referring to salvation. It's referring to marriage. That marriage is a grace that God gives us to get through life. I know some of you are sitting here thinking, um, that's not how I would describe my marriage. But I'm telling you, that is God's design for marriage. And it's when we drop the ball That it stops being that. Somebody drops the ball. Your wife, guys, is supposed to be your BFF. Do we still use those letters or is that old school already? I don't know. Is that old school already? Oh, okay. Well, I see old people saying no and young people saying yes. So, okay. You are not to have a friend or companion closer than your wife. None of your buddies are to take priority over your wife. None of your other acquaintances, your co-workers. And if you start noticing that you're spending too much time or developing a relationship with someone at work or somewhere else, you nip it in the bud. You nip it in the bud. No one is to be closer to you, more united to you in spirit than your wife. Ignorance isn't bliss. Have you ever noticed that two people can live together for years and not even know each other? Because we don't take the time to know each other. When it says know her or to know each other, 
you know, in the garden with the first man and the woman, it says that they were naked and not ashamed. You know, that's not talking about nudity. That's talking about the fact that there was full disclosure between them, that they were hiding nothing from each other. And they loved it. It's a picture. It says they were naked and not ashamed. It's a picture that they were as close as they could be and as open and honest and understanding as they could be. And husbands and wives, to have a marriage that sings, you have to have full disclosure with one another. And guys, that means you have to or we have to listen to what our wives are saying. We have to give them the time to talk to us. And we have to take their concerns seriously. And not just dismiss them because we think they're silly or we don't understand it. It's like that song in the musical My Fair Lady when Henry Higgins was singing, Why can't a woman just be more like a man? I'm glad women aren't like men. But he was saying, she's driving me nuts. Why can't she just be more like me? Guys, the reason God gave you your wife is to balance you out. And those things that may be irritating you, frustrating you, or as we say, driving us crazy. Those are just God's tools to tell us that we need to change. Our wives are instruments of sanctification. Thirdly, we're going to do three and four and we'll be done. Peter says, show her honor. This is talking about an emotional responsibility to our wives. Show her honor is talking about chivalry. What is chivalry? Webster's Dictionary says it's a polite and honorable way of behaving, especially toward women. I thought maybe we should put up a picture of Donald Trump and then then he blew it. If you're visiting, I'm being sarcastic. Peter is saying this. This is tough. This is tough for me to even read this and study because I I went to Lisa already this week. I said, now on Sunday when I'm preaching, uh, I'm going to sound like a hypocrite. Uh, So but it's remember, it's God's word, whether I. Meet it or fail it. It's there. It's still the standard. Every husband, Peter says, is called to be a knight in shining armor who treats his wife like a princess. If we were to have each wife here today stand up and we would ask her. Does your husband treat you like a princess? If he does not finish the sentence, my husband treats me like a. What would she say? Like a short order cook. Like a housekeeper. Like a good friend. Or worse, like a brother. Or like a sister, I mean. No wife wants to be treated like a sister. Right? Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Okay. Guys, why do we stop treating her like a princess after the ring goes on her finger? Oh, my word, the work that goes into courting that girl and getting that ring on her finger. I'm opening every door. I'm talking to her till two in the morning. Oh, remember those talks we had? Now it's like, turn off the light. What are you doing? I'm trying to sleep. 
how much work and effort goes into the chase. And by the way, a woman can be married for 25 years and she still loves to be pursued. Just because we get married doesn't mean we stop pursuing. Is that true or false, ladies? Okay, good. Because I'm going to stop chasing if that's not what you want. Because I'm getting tired. Notice that much of the happiness at home comes from the little, kind, gentlemanly courtesies. That big resentments and bitterness in our wives often grow out of small hurts. Honesty and forgiveness has to be the way of married life. Guys, if we would just be kind, courteous, polite, gentlemanly, sensitive, listening, caring, the happiness quotient in our homes would probably go through the roof. And God has commanded us to be that way in our homes with our wives. Giving honor to her doesn't mean giving in to her. Because sometimes guys turn it into a competition. The guys want to rule. They want to be in charge. And instead of partnering with our wives, we become competitors with our wives. A husband can disagree with his wife and still respect and honor her as a spiritual leader in the home. Some decisions may be unpopular, but we can still act with courtesy and respect. A husband must respect his wife's desires, thinkings and feelings. He may disagree, but he must respect her. And here's the thing, guys. Disagreement does not always equal disrespect. Sometimes we see disrespect where it doesn't exist. Sometimes we see disrespect around every corner. When really it's just frustration, anger or bitterness because we haven't been behaving in a chivalrous manner toward our wives. Notice that God balances our marriages. Your wife's personality and strengths are exactly what you need, you guys. Just an example. I tend to be an impulsive person. She has the patience of Job. We need that balance. Your wife is not your frustration. Your wife is not your irritation. Your wife is exactly what you need to grow into the image of Jesus Christ. Think of it this way. I read this. I thought it was good. Husbands must be the thermostat in the home. Setting the spiritual and emotional tone in the home. And the wives will be the thermometer. They will let us know what the temperature is in the home. And we shouldn't dismiss that. I don't know about your house. I like it like a meat locker cold. She gets cold. So we always have this thing going on, the the AC going on, the AC going off, the fans coming on, the fans going off. I've been trying to do better because she'll say it's freezing in here. Usually I just kind of act like I don't hear it or I have my arguments all prepared, put on more layers of clothes. Uh, 
But I've been trying to say, like last night, I said, are you cold? Would you like me to turn the air off, right? And you blessed me by saying, no, I'm fine. I was like, yeah. Because I'm sweating. I thought, okay, would you like to turn the air off? Are you cold? No, I'm good. All right. Guys, if your wife is troubled, if you've got troubles right now in your home between the two of you, you need to humble yourself. And you need to look at her frustration as a thermometer. She's saying something's not right here. And guys, you are the one responsible to listen and to focus on her and to figure out what she's saying and then to change things. She's the thermometer. She's telling you something's not right here. But usually what is our first emotion? Anger. Anger. And anger is not always outward. Sometimes anger takes the form of shutting down and detaching. That's a form of anger. Fourth and last. So we have the physical, we have the mental, we have the emotional. Peter says we have a spiritual responsibility. Peter says you need to live with your wives in an understanding way, treating her as a fellow heir of the grace so that your prayers will not be hindered. Prayer is assumed both individually and together as a husband and wife and prayer together as a family. Whether or not we're praying together as husbands and wives and families indicates how it's going in our home, because prayer is basic to a happy, holy home. And I'll tell you to my shame for years and years and years, we never prayed together. And I was a pastor. We had our own separate prayer lives. But a couple years ago, someone confronted me. My own son confronted me. Called me from Indiana in tears. It's like, what are you crying about? Oh, no, another breakup. Here we go. Oh. Said, I just don't think you're treating mom like you should. Wow. That kid's got guts. Since then, we start praying together. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, when we get to the church. She's thrilled. She's over the moon. It's commanded in Scripture. Grace of life here in Peter refers to marriage, not salvation. Marriage is the best relationship earthly life has to offer. Both husband and wife are submitting to Christ, and that leads to an enriching marriage. If either husband and wife or neither is submitting to God's design for the home, they rob each other and miss out on a lot of blessings. The husband and wife each has a duty, first of all, to God. My duty as a husband to my wife does not depend on my wife. God says, live with her in an understanding way, treat her as a fellow heir of grace, regardless of how she's going to respond. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, regardless of how she is treating you. And vice versa for the wives. Your duty to your husband as a wife to follow his leadership, to be his helpmate, to respect him, doesn't depend on whether or not he is behaving good or poorly. Because it's connected to your worship of God. But if both would do what we're supposed to do, boy, things would sing. Last slide for today. Take an inventory. 
Maybe even talk about this later, uh, husbands and wives. And if you're here today and you're not married, but you desire to be married, think about your personality and the relationships that you've had before or your relationships now with people. But husbands and wives, are you partners or are you competitors? Are you in this battle for control with each other? Or are you partners in the grace of life called marriage? What if you're watching the Rams game today? and they, uh, Who's our running back? Gurley? I don't know. Hand the ball off to the running back and he starts running. But the wide receiver comes up and rips the ball out of his hands. <laughs> They're not playing on the same team, are they? Are they going to win? No. Husbands and wives, do you want externals or eternals? Psalm 127, Psalm 128. In other words, what are you living for? If God and in the Lord Jesus Christ is not the center of your home and the center of your marriage and you're not submitting yourselves to his design for you as a wife or your design as a husband, then you're only living for external things. You're daydreaming and fantasizing about a better spouse and a better family and a better life. And, and your only thought is, I got to get out of here. I can't take it anymore. But you just take all of that with you to the next relationship. Nothing's resolved or changed. But I'm telling you right here and right now, if you make a commitment even here today to work on a couple things a week from today, you'll be in here and your marriage will be singing. And, and I'm not exaggerating. But it takes repentance. It takes a commitment, first of all, to do things God's way. Do you understand each other better? Live with her in an understanding way. Do you help each other spiritually or are you hindering each other? Are you sensitive to each other or are you taking each other for granted? Do you enrich each other or are you robbing each other? And are you seeing God answer your prayers. All those things come out of First Peter 3, 7. Let's stand together. I kept you really late today, but I thought this was important, especially for the guys. Let me say this to you guys. If you're here today and you're married. If you need to go to your wife today and ask forgiveness. You need to do that. You need to strike while the iron is hot. And you ask her to forgive you. For failing her as a husband. Based on the things we've seen today. Do not expect anything in return from her. Do not expect her to applaud you or reward you. Don't expect her to change on a dime just because you're asking forgiveness. This is something you need to do. Because you know your duty and role as a husband is an act of worship to God. And so you have sinned not Primarily against your wife, you have sinned against the Lord Jesus Christ, first of all. So if you need to do that, guys, you do it today. And don't say, I'm sorry. You say, will you please forgive me? Well, why do you do that? Because when we do that, we throw the ball to the other court, don't we? We get the other person involved in the process of healing. So guys, search your hearts. If you need to do that, you do that today. Lord, thanks for our time here today. Uh, I pray that your word is penetrating our hearts and our lives, especially as men. Uh, 
Because, Father, I believe that men and maleness and masculinity is under attack in our culture. But you have told us that as men, we're responsible to lead and to provide and to protect. And to do it in such a way that we're loving and gentle and sacrificial. That the reason you have given us women in our lives is to teach us to be servants. That our service to the women in our lives is to be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. So, Father, as men convict us to follow the example of Jesus Christ. To fulfill our duties as husbands and fathers. And even as children, as sons and daughters, as brothers and sisters as moms and dads, to fulfill all those duties as an act of worship to you, regardless of how family members may respond. I'm praying for deep, deep conviction, Father, to see our homes and our marriages and our family relationships from a theological perspective, not cultural, not self-centered, not worldly. And Father, I pray that as we move toward our families in repentance, that you would have mercy and pour out your grace upon our homes. That we might experience the blessings that you have intended us to have. We all have a lot to work on. No one is perfect. But we thank you and we praise you for grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a good day. Thanks for being patient and hanging out to the end there.